11FS, I'm David Breer and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you China's app map allowing you to dob in deadbeat debtors. Lloyds bring you back 100% mortgages? We'll find out if that's a good idea or not. And HSBC has a new sound identity. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 293 of Fintech Insider. We're coming to you live from the 11FS offices in Devonshire Square in a rather cold London, it has to be said. My name is David Breer and I'll be your host for today. I'm joined, as always, by some of my colleagues. This week, we've got Simon Taylor and Sarah Kachansky. How's it going, guys? Really, really well, thank you. Been a fun week. Lots of interesting people want to do lots of interesting things. Uh, kind of exhausted, but happy. Nice. Pretty manic on my end as well, actually. I, I sat down for half an hour today and I thought, wow, this is this is nice. <laughs> <laughs> this is novel. It's, it's nice. We're using this podcast as just an excuse to sit together and drink. It's like, it's uh, to be honest here, it's pretty much the plan from the this beginning. This has become right? therapy. Like, it, it's <laughs> kind of mental. <laughs> well, this chair is the comfiest chair I've sat in in a long time yeah. as well. It actually spins, it swivels. Right. But I'm really encouraged by how many people want to do amazing stuff and keep talking to us. But we could use more. So, you know, Simon11fs.com if you want to do something fun. Do you know what? I could just do it with some sun. Quite frankly, yeah. that's what I could do with. Like, if anybody can send us out to, like, Bermuda for a conference, that would be fabulous. Yeah, there must be banks to build out there, I reckon. I right? figure there is. All right. Well, we don't just do this stuff alone. We have some wonderful guests with us, as always. Uh, first up, we have Oscar Williams Groot, who is the senior city correspondent at Yahoo Finance. How's it going, Oscar? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. Um, yeah, this is a nice, nice change for me as well. I've been at court all week, more or less, reporting on uh, the Barclays <laughs> oh. trial that's going on at the moment. So. I thought you, reporting on yeah. it. Yeah, I thought you'd done court. something. Well, no, <laughs> no. The, yeah, it's, it's uh, nice to be on that side of the table rather <laughs> than uh, in the dock. So, yeah, it's... Uh, a good change of pace. <laughs> well, like, usually you are in the dock. Is that what you're saying? Is <laughs> no, this no comment. Yeah. no comment. No comment. Fine. That's probably safest. All right. Next up, we have Valentina Christensen, so Director of Growth and Communications at Oak North. How's it going, Val? Yeah, very well. I've uh, spent most of this week working on um, some content for our annual report. Some good stuff coming out there. So, yeah, it's one of the favorite things I get to write every year. So it's been Very a good week. Good. Well, it's all been good news for most of the years on that one. So uh, I'm sure more coming. Uh, next up, we've got Liv Benisti. 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 Uh, there we go. Uh, head of financial crime at uh, Mimiro. Mimiro. <laughs> the new name for it. You guys have just rebranded. A new name. Yeah. Quiet Week announced a Series B fundraise mm. and a rebrand and a new name. So, you know. Average, average day. Yeah, not, not much going on then. That's good. Nothing going on at all. Well, thanks no, for making time. It's been time. super exciting. Thanks for having me. No problem. All right. Well, let's get on with the show. Before we do that, we want to let you know a little bit of what we've been up to. So this week we've brought back, uh, I think for the third week, I think it is, we brought back Fintech Insider on air. So what we're going to be doing every Wednesday is going live from the 11FS office. So uh, while Michael and Alex and all of the guys on the audio editing of this one make us sound quite good, all of the like ums and ahs and the shit that I really drop is going to be out there on Periscope, which is going to be good fun. So if you want to hear from that, uh, this week we talked about why are all of the reasons that startups fail, which was super interesting. The week before, Jason and Simon joined me to talk about all of the things that banks need to fix. And the one before that, we had Simon Vanskalina from Monzo talking about open banking. So if you want to get involved in that and you want to uh, see the horrors of our faces as much as listening to the sound of our voices, then tune in 3 p.m. GMT every Wednesday. All right, let's get on with the news. First up, we have a reasonably terrifying story. This is China launches an app to dub in debt. 
It's hard to say, isn't it? Right. Basically, this is an app that tells you if you're within 500 yards of somebody in debt and encourages you to report them if they seem capable of paying up. This is a weird one, isn't it? Well, then they they actually mapped people, right? Like, this is terrifying. Yeah, it's not if they're capable. The app tells you if if they are capable. It's kind of like this old Spanish system whereby they shame you into paying back your debt. So the Spanish system, which I actually thought was an old system but actually still exists, is basically they send a man in fancy dress to follow you around to embarrass you until you pay back your debts. This is the same idea. So basically what happens... I like that, though. Like, the shame view of it sounds, like, quite entertaining. We talked about this a a little bit last week, didn't we, about, like, I think we should shame people into behaving better rather than finding them. Now I'm um, thinking about the cone of shame from up. <laughs> um, but the, the point about this is it's access through WeChat, right? Yeah. So this shows that WeChat is working very, very closely with the government. It shows that Tencent and all those companies, despite they, them saying they want to stand independent, are clearly not. You have to choose to access it as well. So everybody in China has WeChat, but you can choose to access this debt thing. So basically you're saying... I want to see my neighbors. The point is, when you find your neighbors and you encourage them to pay them back, you get points, which adds to China's new social score. So if you get if you get points, then you get to do things like apply for jobs. Um, if you get negative points, then you get banned from traveling. Slower internet speeds. What? Reduced access to good <laughs> I know, schools. I was fine with the jobs thing. Yeah. But the slower internet <laughs> speeds exactly. is not okay. Yeah. Wait, so if you partake, your social score goes up. Yeah. Like goes you, up. If, I thought it was just if you know if obviously if you're in debt your social score goes down no. and if you're reported but if you as work, such it's basically the like old communist informing system yeah. like wow. a new name and shame G- yeah. gamifying just citizenship it is. it's a bit basically. like Pokemon when you see kids running around trying to yeah. find Pokemon and getting school it's awful so they're going to catch all of the debtors essentially is yeah, that but the thing is, is that like debtors already feel bad like people who are in a lot of debt that they couldn't go to a shop and not that their cards going to get declined they're probably feeling pretty embarrassed about that anyway and there's a very clear link between mental health and people with you know severe debt problems it's just the absolute it's sort of textbook bad thing to do. I mean, it's the opposite of what you should be doing. I mean, I think, um, is it Mind who has their, their still in the red study, you know, which shows the sort of link between mental health and debt. And it's just sort of, I guess it's like sort of saying that that's a fine, that's okay thing to do. And it's just going to, I think, um, it's gonna, probably going to make people feel way worse. I, I think it also ties into the fact as well, though, that China made access to credit stupidly, stupidly easy. And loads of people took on lots and lots of debt with thinking it was free money. And so some of those people actually are capable of paying it back, but some of those people are not. And the whole the thing that actually scares me is more about how are they deciding that you, they think you're capable. So some of those people will be capable of paying it back and be living on free credit because it's better than like mm. trying to, like the earning enough money or whatever. But how, who makes, my concern is who makes that decision? You know, it's a fair question about who makes the decision. I think the I just want to step back to the macroeconomic point you made there about like there was a lot of cheap credit. China's been through massive growth fueled by lenders who really didn't understand lending to a consumer base that really didn't understand borrowing. Not surprising they've got the problem in the first place, but this solution is really, really concerning because anybody, it seems on the surface of it, anybody with this app can now just approach a stranger and say you're in debt and or can find all kinds of information and and tell tell the authorities about you. It really concerns me. And it was also uh, the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute have done some really good work around the links between uh, debt and mental health. Like being socially shamed on top of already feeling a sense of shame. I, I'm really concerned. And I'm not sure that, you know, if, if, if the ultimate goal here is the control of it, I mean, there's there's probably much better things you could do that are a lot more positive. I mean, look at step change, you know, the, the sort of debt advice you can get, you know, a debt management plan. There's still ways where you can 
you know, get control, but in a more positive way, not having everyone walking around being, you know, embarrassed and shamed. I just can't see China doing it. I completely agree <laughs> with you. I think that all over Western Europe, that is a thing. I just, can you imagine China doing that? But that's it, what's amazing is the gap yeah. between kind of where we are. You know, now if you're day late with bills or whatever, and it comes in and they'll say, you know, are you struggling? Can we help? What can we do? You've got credit checks. You've got a formal um, infrastructure in place mm. for these sorts of things. This is, but but I think it makes it makes not just uh, societal sense. It makes business sense as well because actually, if you if you're helping people through those problems, they won't default as you're more as likely to get well, paid right? back. So so actually, it just makes business sense not to be dicks. Really, <laughs> I just think yeah. What's interesting for me, picking up on what um, Sarah was saying about um, the old communist style that seems to emulate, actually. The majority of Chinese people seem to agree with that. There was a recent survey in 2018 um, about this sort of social credit system, and 80% of people who responded said they thought it was a good idea, and 76% said they thought a lack of trust in other people was one of the biggest problems in Chinese society. And so, you know, maybe conversely, there's something about having this wisdom of the crowd that in a way seems fairer than the old system of you can't trust anybody because they could be an informant, they could, mm -hmm. you know, dob you in, you know, to the to the authorities versus this, if it's uh, in some way the verdict of a mass amount of people, the whole, I mean, that's the big idea of social credits overall, not just the debt aspect. Mm -hmm. I think it's an interesting idea that we could have a cultural bias and a cultural lens on this that we don't like, but is actually much more acceptable in a different economy. But what concerns me is that this is tech and data driven. It's not socially driven. So the technology is arming people with the ability to go, that person's in debt, report them. Um, and so that behavioral thing is, is really, really strange. It's not just arming you with the ability to do it. It's encouraging you. It's incentivizing yeah. you mm. to do it. And that that's a, a further step. Well, and like you say, the, the very subjective nature of actually somebody else's opinion about whether you could you look like you should be able to pay it back or not you know it's like at the point where you're in debt you've got to like go out with those old sneakers and ripped jeans just so you don't look like you can pay the debt back you know and just walk around looking sad it's you, you know it's just funny just to bring it back to Spain as well that's a Spanish thing you walk around parts of Madrid and they look terribly terribly run down it's deliberate because they don't on the inside the houses and apartments are beautiful but it's a deliberate thing and it, and it kind of goes back to, to a similar idea in a similar era that you don't want people to know you've got money well, wow. all right. Well, from potentially looking like you're in debt or trying to not look like you're debt, in debt to uh, potentially getting into debt. So this is story number two. So this is Lloyd's reintroduce 100% mortgages. Uh, story over on The Guardian, Lloyd's unveil 100% mortgage for first-time buyers. What could go wrong? <laughs> Ah, I mean, the, 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 the interesting thing here as well is like it's a guarantor mortgage. So, um, you have to have family who are likely, who not are likely, who can put a certain amount of deposit into a savings account with Lloyd's, um, to back you up. I mean, there's so many things wrong with this in my mind. Firstly, it's the idea that this is designed to, um, bolster the housing market, um, against, you know, the Brexit threat. Do we want to get people into more debt? Is that how we bolster against Brexit? Secondly, you're not helping any particularly new demographic because if you've got liquid assets to put into an account to help your child buy a house, then you're already of that top percentage of the people who can help their kids buy anyway. Um, and then the third thing that springs to mind is the whole um, older people in this country cashing out their pensions too early and not having enough money left. So if they're taking the liquid assets they do have, handing them to their kids, the kids can't then pay back the mortgage. That money disappears on top of it. So it's actually putting even more pressure on that that middle group who are already feeling a squeeze. And there are many other things, I'm sure. <laughs> there was also a weird justification. They were like, so it's for, you know, parents want to be able to help their kids, you know, get their deposit for the house. 
But then they, you know, well, we all know that through Help to Buy, you can do a 5% deposit versus a 10%. So then it surely makes more sense to just give them 5% to go towards the house and then keep the remaining 5%. I'll put it in a, in a high interest savings account. Um, and then rather than doing what this is, which is just put the full 10%. I mean, if that's the problem of, oh, I want to be able to access the money, well, you'd still be able to access a bit of money, but then your kids yeah. would get, you know, but at least... Help to Buy is very, very limited. I think that's the point. Well, and, and it's it? 5% not on 100% mortgage as well, right? So that would be 5% against potentially 60% of the value of the, the property. So this, I guess this is, to, to your point though, Sarah, this is po- potentially allowing people to overreach even more right. on what the mortgage payments would actually be, which is silly. There's a real structural problem building in the mortgage market in the UK. Um, you see that Santander announced, uh, I think just yesterday, um, that their profits had fallen in, in the mortgage sector more than 14% um, and squeezed, on squeezed margins um, due to, quote, increased competition. But a lot of that increased competition uh, is being driven by the top players in the market reducing their margins um, because they've got scale. So these mid-market bar- uh, lenders are having to do something else to get into, the, get into that market. And a lot of that comes down to the fact that consumers over the last 10 years coming out of the financial crisis haven't seen real wage growth. And because they haven't seen wage growth, the asset prices have continued to increase. So you've got risk building up on bank balance sheets, and yet you haven't gotten a consumer that can really fund that. So then you end up in 100% mortgages, then you end up in bubble territory and credit crisis. Uh, You can see this one looming. It's an interesting statement from Santander on that one, because it's like, our boohoo like competition means we're not making as much money right that's that's a strange statement to make like because there's competition coming through and we have to start competing higher on price and we can't just fleece people we're not making as much profit out of it as we would have done before and and they're in this interesting position where they need to make more money out of their existing customers because bringing them in is even more costly because you've got the broker margin so you need to be retaining customers uh, and you want to be making more money out of your existing customers because the existing business model is broken uh, there's, I think there's a giant opportunity to change the cost model in the mortgages market, but I haven't seen anybody really go deep in, in doing that yet in the way that we've seen in challenger banks in uh, retail and SME. A more radical suggestion. Do we need mortgages and to even buy property? Like, why is the number one goal of every 18 to 35-year-old in this country to buy a house? Like, if you look at most of Europe... I mean, I have I have friends who are Swiss and their parents have rented all their entire lives and the idea of buying a house horrifies them. Why would you buy is, a house? It is very British. What a terrible idea. Maybe we should be rethinking the whole thing. Like maybe we should be building affordable housing or, you know, scrap that, even easier legislation, make it two, three, four, five-year tenancies the norm, um, you know, cut back on the fees for renting. And, and then you have people who feel more secure in rented accommodation uh, and no, that, I, that solves a lot of problems. I think, the as you say, the big part of that is that our renting properties are so overinflated that actually most people are you'd end up paying slightly more if you can scrape together the deposit for buying a property than you would renting a property whereas if you go off to amsterdam or berlin or wherever like they have a lot more of a control over the rental market meaning actually it you're probably more advanced you know it's a more advanced Absolutely. way to just rent instead of buying and, right? I, and i think that you know the, it, it should, it's ludicrous in this country that if you're paying a mortgage you're often paying less than you'd pay for rent on the same property mm. like that is astounding to me. So you're literally rewarding people that you can get that 5 to 10% together. And all mm. of a sudden, their rent goes from like, I don't know, £1,600. So for example, where I live in London, the average rent is £1,600 a month. But the average mortgage for people who can put down 10 to 15% is more like twelve to £1,300 a month. Mm. So once their parents give them that money, they're spending less. Their disposable income goes up, et cetera, et cetera. That was also what they were saying here, that it was sort of well-off families, you know, elbowing aside those, you know, who, who don't maybe have parents who can afford to put the 10% down. Yeah. 
But I, I mean, I would say with this, though, the one, the one uh, caveat I would add is that I can't imagine this would grow to be a significant part of the market because it's such a esoteric product. You, you know, as we've discussed at length, if you've got the money, why wouldn't you do the traditional way? And there's lots of other, there's lots of barriers as to why you would jump on this. And, and going back to the sort of building risk point, since the financial crisis and the housing crash, I think regulators are so hot on that particular type of risk. And actually, they're more concerned at the moment about things like the leverage loan market and mm. corporate debt rather than personal debt. And they're so hot on that. I can't see it developing into a, a systemic risk. Not yet. Um, but this is mood music, especially for the bottom end of the market. You're seeing some lenders at the bottom end of the market just not lending anymore. Um, you're seeing the mid-market um, having to reduce their prices to keep up with the, the largest lenders. I think this is more of a signal of they're feeling the pinch now, but it's not a systemic risk yet. It could be in a few years. And if you have uh, other uh, elements of the kind of credit market in distress, this could just kind of snowball quite quickly there were two things I, I noticed when I was reading this. First is that it's the three-year fixed rate deal at 2.99%. I have looked at mortgages a lot recently. I'm, I'm not sure that's the best deal that you can get on a 10% mortgage. Um, and then I sort of took a step back from the, from the, yes, there are issues of debt and, and, and that's a very important conversation. But I was thinking about it more in terms of, um, is this the beginning of, of beginning to look at other factors other than your own credit score, your own ability to to afford? I actually, I mean, my background is international development, so I started to think about microfinance. Yes, this is not the same scale, but um, you know, your ability to pay back being considered in the context of your community, your mm. family, other forms of, of taking into account your your ability to pay back and your credit score. I thought that in itself was interesting if you extract it from. Lloyd's and, and yeah. England, English price, um, house prices Link- and the ability to pay. I thought it was an interesting concept. Links back to that Chinese point as well. It does. Are we going to lend to you because everybody else around this table is in debt? You're sitting around the table with them. Mm, I don't think so. That's where I was going. <laughs> I also exactly. think in terms of the dynamics, maybe it's interesting to compare it to something like the student debt bubble in the US in that this is seen as something that, you know, going back to what you were saying, Sarah, is societally like a rite of passage almost, but it's getting more and more and more expensive and more and more either exclusive or you know a millstone millstone around your neck that you can't then tackle and surely there's going to become a breaking point where people say something has to change you know it it seems like we've been past that many times before and nothing does seem to change but maybe maybe we should all go to Berlin or maybe we should build more houses (laughs) that's the the answer that nobody wants so what they kept doing was finding ways to just keep going a bit longer with uh, esoteric policy options and actually it it is time to face the music like the LISA it's like the let's just okay well no one can afford a house or a house or retirement it's like you save for one or the other because (laughs) it's too difficult for millennials to save for both in in this day and age, it's just you know that's, yeah. that was the sort Have of you, whole. Take your pick. Do you want yeah, somewhere exactly. to live? Do you want to do you want to fund retirement or you want to live in a nice house? I mean, yeah. I'm I'm not sure. Like I've got two kids. I'm not sure. The I, I like the idea of having like multi generational debt type thing. Mm-hmm. Like I love those guys, but like I'm, I'm <laughs> not like losing my house. <laughs> over the it's also yeah. multi generational <laughs> both ways as well. So if you look at if you look at the average, I don't know, eighteen. So look at the average thirty year old. Then their parents are like so say roughly sixty. So the likelihood that those parents are supporting their parents in mm-hmm. either a nursing home or at home and also supporting their children who are financially but you know probably not in a great position or certainly not the position they were in 
that that group in the middle becomes more and more squeezed from both ends, from both ends, and both ends. So all this idea that like all the baby boomers still have it have it great, I think we should start to rethink no, that position. Especially with life expectation and uh, you know age is going the way they are. I look at my my mum who. You know, thankfully had both her parents until a short while ago and still has one um and she's there all the time and also she's got two kids that she's having to deal with and my brother just got married so maybe they'll you know you never know what's going to happen there'll she's be another generation Childcare at some point she's, she's going to be expected com- to be childcare yeah. for your brother's and caring kids. for her father yeah and, and it's all there's just a lot going on there that it's not a dynamic that we've necessarily thought about too much very very true all right from one terrifying well a couple of terrifying stories don't have kids don't get into debt people like live well let's move on to some good news all right this is a uh, story over on finextra so this is uh, true layer launches open banking based payments api so true layer has opened a open banking psd to based payments api giving businesses and consumers an alternative to card payments and bank transfers Finally, somebody doing something interesting with open banking? Well, it's what we've been waiting for. So uh, it's the second part. So you have AISPs, which is you can pull inf- account information data and POSPs is like pushing and pulling payments. And this is the bit that actually where things start to get interesting because having all your data in one place is fab, but you can't do anything with it. So you can see, you know, AISPs, a lot of what we've seen from them as aggregators, you know, you use Yolt, it's brilliant, but oh, wonderful, I need to move money to my savings account, so I have to come out of Yolt, wander over to this bank, move it into that bank, check it's gone in, et cetera, et cetera. Finally, now we can actually start to see the whole ecosystem come together. Um, I think Trulayer are doing a brilliant job of it. For me, the uh, key question here is how well the banks that are using the API will promote the solution to consumers, because it's no good. We all sit here and think, oh, this is fab, but the average consumer on the street has no idea what this means. And we know how hard it is to get people to adopt new payment methods. So how hard are the banks going to push people to start using this payment methods powered by this technology? I think what they don't realize is the benefits, right? So um, if in terms of the, the pace of transactions getting there, I remember when I was living in the States and Venmo came out, people didn't realize that you're not getting immediate payments because no one understands ACH and no one understands the payment rails. So you've got the, you know, this ability to, within a merchant site, log into your bank account and have the money sent. Is the UX for them that much better than using your card where you get mileage, where you get bonus points, where you can fly somewhere or, or, you know, whatever benefits you can get on various credit cards? Do they know it's quicker? Do they know it's cheaper? Do they actually understand the underlying benefits to them? I'm not sure. To me, that's the fundamental question is user experience. I've seen so many examples of of banks trying to do peer-to-peer and banks trying to do payments. And usually the user experience is so god-awful that nobody uses it. Um, The possible exception being Zelle in the US has some usage. Um, But otherwise, really... This worries me. Um, so the API requires active bank authentication before money can leave the account. In other words, your bank, you have to authenticate with them. Now, if your app's on your phone uh, and you have an app with your bank, in theory, that should be really simple and slick. I have a funny feeling that the banks aren't going to lean into making that as slick as possible and or just won't make it a priority and or just aren't great at that type of experience generally. So there's a video on YouTube, have you seen it, where um, they take Francesco's login, well, not, obviously you don't see his login, <laughs> but um, they see what would happen if you went through an RBS account and what that could look like. Yeah. But you're right, it's going to be very dependent on how the banks choose to lean and, in. And if you look at what's happened with some of the AISPs, you know, uh, companies like Yolt and others that have, do- have done some of the data aggregation have done a pretty good job of navigating some horrific um, sort of onboarding scenarios coming from some of the banks. Uh, but otherwise, it's not great already. So you're going to see, I think, this this suite of other apps that try and try and make something of this. But in theory, a push payment could make sense for a consumer. Um, there are some use cases for it, but I think the benefits are 
very much missed. I, I think this is um, this is the bank's sort of loosening control a little bit, mm-hmm. but not massively, you know, not letting it completely go. So they're in the situation where they put these pieces in place, and this is working across all of the CMA nine. So this is a collective view of actually all of the banks kind of allowing this to happen. But I, I do agree with you, Simon, in terms of like that controlled format. It feels like it's like a you know the leash has been sort of let out a little bit, but not completely let off yet. I would take issue with the banks allowing it to happen. I'm fairly mm-hmm. sure they were forced into this corner and now they're kind of trying to find a way to, to make it work. Um, for me, the, I mean, the, the, the argument that gets put forward a lot is the amount of money the banks could save if they didn't have to deal with Visa and MasterCard. Um, obviously, MasterCard's involvement with Vocalink, which could... Which, which, which could, you know, MasterCard to Vocalink could mean account to account payments. So there is definitely a, a loop there that could be closed, if you like, if MasterCard starts doing the user journey, which it presents to the banks as like a, you know, a payment rail, a payment way of doing it. But, you know, we, we were talking last week, in fact, about Klarna and like the idea of even though Klarna is super easy to use and, you know, um, it's gone, come into the UK with great advertising campaigns, it's still something that people are still slightly unsure of because they don't really get it. Even though Klarna is just another payment method, even if you if you use you know, a couple of websites, I use Klarna as the only way to pay, and it's just a direct through payment. People are slightly unsure about it. I don't know anybody who has any issues with payments. You know, like I I can't. Nobody I talk to ever is like, oh, it's so difficult to pay. Maybe yeah. they like put off buying something on their mobile phone. But even that, you know, it's not that much hassle. Not here, but when I spoke yeah. to a, a colleague of mine, an ex-colleague of mine from BBVA, yeah. and we were talking about the story, he's like, well, you know, you don't have to enter the whole IBAN number. And that's something you don't remember sure. until you live in but Europe. You have to enter that 55,000 digits that you get every time. But this is an open banking thing, and it's like... We're so spoiled here that that's but, why I think so many things generally, just Generally, I come stumble. from a different perspective, though, right? Um, before somebody builds a great product like Uber, getting a taxi isn't hard. Like, consumers are very bad at telling you uh, what they want and very bad at telling you what they need. They're great at telling you their problems. So if you were to say, when was the last time you had to put a deposit on a house and how did you do it? Oh, well, I had to do it over six transactions so that I could use faster payments. Well, that sucks. Like, if you start getting into the problems, you start finding solutions. Whereas we tend to go oh, well, it kind of works. It's like, well, yeah, because I've figured out a way to do it, but that might not be the optimal way. And if you start looking for where the anxiety is and and how you can construct an end-to-end journey around it, then things do get different. So I'm hopeful that the fintechs sitting around this will will start to build some of those end-to-end journeys for consumers. Uh, And and I think that's interesting. Second point, though, is compare... (laughs) Sorry, I had to make a second point. (laughs) Sorry, carry on. (laughs) I feel judged now. <laughs> You're not judged, but please, we're going to let you make the point. Thank you. Um, I, it struck me that the valuation of Trulay, even though they're doing amazing things with PSD2, uh, their last round was $7.5 million in the middle of the year. Compare that with Plaid that were just valued at nearly $2 billion. Like, where's this valuable and who's it valuable for? Maybe the UK is not the answer. Um, yeah, well, the, the the point with Trulayer is that they're kind of playing in the UK, but actually their target is not the UK. Yeah. Germany, France, Spain, they're already in beta in Germany because weirdly, and Francesco, who's the CEO of Trulayer, explained this to me, Germany has had like an equivalent of open banking since the 1980s. They have a system there which allows you to pull data and has been government managed since the 1980s. So Trulayer went in and worked with that and they're planning to go into Spain, you know, as you said, friendly with BBA, France, Italy. I think that's actually where they're looking at. I think they're using the UK as kind of it's a great place to be. It's a great place to, you know, get ideas in and open banking allows them to explore and like try new things. But I don't think this is where they think they're going to make a mark. Well, then anywhere where your business is 
predominantly based on volume, then like the UK is a nice starting place, but it's never going to be the end place. All right, moving on and talking about doing things a bit more globally. So this is the FCA launches its Global Innovation Network. So this is over on the FCA's website, so fca.org.uk. FCA launches GFIN, which sounds gangster, doesn't it? Ain't nothing but a GFIN, baby. (laughs) Uh, The Global Financial Innovation Network, GFIN, was formally launched in January 2019 by an international group of financial regulators. Sounds like a fun thing. Mm -hmm. And Latest. Somebody, <laughs> somebody call Warren G. There's so many regulators. And yeah, Gs. I'm really trying not to make Warren G jokes, but uh, yeah. Uh, including the FCA in that shenanigan as well. So uh, <laughs> this built on the FCA's early 2018 proposal to create a global sandbox. Um, sounds super interesting. What do you guys think? I mean, I, 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 I've always loved the idea um, of, of regulators working more closely together. I think certainly, you know, the people around the room who work for, for, for fintechs and for small companies, the idea of scaling is, is always going to be, anything that makes that easier is always going to be appealing. Um, the, I mean, it feels like a slightly bureaucratic nightmare getting that many regulators and to agree on anything. I think one of the things that is worth pointing, there's two things that are worth pointing out. One thing that's worth pointing out is a lot of the regulators involved in this initial group are, um, have legal systems based on the British legal systems. It's not that difficult. So you look at Singapore, you look at Bahrain, Abu Dhabi, um, uh, Australia, like their regulatory systems are actually quite similar to the UK. So uh, it's kind Sarah of... Sarah bringing up Australia again. Having <laughs> got the Australian story, um, which is which is, which is is kind of... So it's, it's an easy place to start. I mean, I, I like the idea actually of ignore all of this and let's just have global regulation. <laughs> Stop f- making sandboxes. Let's just have one set of rules. And- we do the US ones. <laughs> oh, oh, that's true. Because <laughs> if you break their rules, you'll find out. It is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's that. fair. That's fair. No, I was just. I, yeah. All right. But I was thinking more about the fact that the, the risk risk based approach versus the kind of prescriptive approach. Where in the US, if you break, yeah, you're right. If you break them in the US, then you're completely screwed. But, but actually, maybe this is a good way to show the US that across sort of fifty states, you know, where there are, you know, I mean, you can see with the sort of OCC now battling it out with uh, with certain state regulators. I mean. Um, this might be a good way to, sh- to demonstrate that you can innovate and you can you can assess regulation across multiple markets and not just in Europe, but actually globally um, and make it work. And then that will be, you know, maybe a test case for the US to see that they could do something you know, quite similar. I would love to be so open-minded. <laughs> what we're seeing is sandboxes popping up everywhere and this is collecting a lot of them together so that businesses can expand globally. I think on the, on the surface of it, at a principal level, what a great idea. Like you can now expand into these 30 countries much easier i think the practice of it is gonna be a lot harder because whilst there are some regimes that are not dissimilar like if you look at a lot of the things that come out of the monetary authority of singapore it rhymes quite closely with a lot of things you're coming see see coming out of the uh, fca which rhymes quite closely with the abu dhabi global market there are definitely things that you can connect up but how many businesses are in those three particular markets that's that's kind of my bigger challenge is like you really want that proximity and natural expansion from a business's perspective where am i going to go next we we are seeing in the fintech space though right all of the challenger banks here are going all right where next like so actually this type of thing particularly being grown here might be really helpful if you're monzo going to singapore or hong kong or the the us sorry um post brexit that's interesting that's all i was going to say well, I, can I just pick up on the Brexit point? I think that's really interesting in this in terms of, you know, the amount of companies I speak to that always say the FCA is such a big selling point for being based in the UK. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to have hurdles, you know, in other formats post-Brexit, 
then why not make almost regulation as a service? You know, they lead the way globally and they codify it with this type of organization. So even if you're not based here, you look to the UK and you, you know, they, they lead point on this sort of conversation. The flip side though, the danger is if they, if that is at least an implicit motivation, where does that leave their core job of protecting consumers and things like that, you know, are, is this going to create political backlash where people say, you know, maybe a, another PPI scandal or something comes up and they're like, were you asleep at the wheel? Were you focusing too much on the global agenda and trying to promote British business abroad? Were you doing the right thing? So there's potential jeopardy there. Yeah, I mean, so the, the, the point that I, I was thinking about was actually very closely aligned to that is that like um, the FCA says any other regulator who wants to um, support innovation in the interest of consumers mm-hmm. is welcome to join this group. Now, I appreciate the FCA has that mandate, mandate and it's quite unusual. And I also know that the FCA does right now stick very, very strongly to that. That does drive an awful lot of what they do. But I question, what I was going to do was question the motivation of some of the other other uh, other regulators that have maybe joined this organization to start with or maybe who will join in the future because it, it is it is such an unusual mandate to have and it's so hard to operate from that perspective like of the consumer perspective rather than the bank's perspective if that makes sense because regulators are so used to internationally being lobbied by the banks and doing what the banks want them to do it's such a different mindset but also i wouldn't say that that's you know on the the falling asleep at the wheel point because ultimately this innovation is to create things that will benefit the consumer so it is part of their remit to go out and to make it easier for companies to find ways to you know, operate better. I mean, we weren't part of a sandbox, but you know, the move to the cloud was a result. Our move to the cloud was a result of six months of working very closely with the regulator in AWS, and that has been very beneficial to us because, in the event of a cyber attack, for example, we can rebuild our entire core in five hours in a new location. That does benefit the consumer. So, I do think there are there are examples mm. where you know, actually pursuing a global agenda and working with other regulators is, is ultimately beneficial for the customer. Completely, completely agree with all of that. Uh, if only we knew someone at the regulator to talk to. A- about this. In fact, we did. So let's uh, have a listen to what Anna Wallace had to say. Your keen listeners will recall that I've been talking on this podcast about the FCA's aspirations for a global sandbox since February 2018. It's almost a year, actually, to the day um, since we first uh, launched our initial call for input on the idea of a global sandbox. And this was really a combination of the work we'd done as a regulator of encouraging innovation through our own regulatory sandbox and the work that we've done to support firms scale their business through cooperation agreements with other regulators. And we were really delighted to get such a positive response, particularly from the regulatory community. And within only a few months, we'd formulated uh, the Global Financial Innovation Network and had set out uh, for the public our vision for how, as a group, we could encourage innovation, including uh, the initial idea of a global testing platform. And so... The reason I'm talking about it today is we've actually formally launched GFIN and the immediate next steps that we're going to be taking. So what do we do? Well, we've got a lot of feedback from stakeholders that we needed a more diverse network of regulators. Um, And we're delighted that the group has now moved from 12 to 29 members, welcoming its first regulators from Africa and Europe. Uh, So GFIN now covers four continents. And and I think those regulators really bring different expertise and and a diverse Uh, view of their own uh, local markets. We also had a lot of feedback about how we might collaborate together as regulators. And we've set out uh, again last week uh, how we're going to work as a group and how we're going to interact with other groups like um, the Global Standards Setters. And I'm really excited 
to see how we might foster new ways of working on looking at issues related to innovation. But the big news is that we announced a pilot phase for the cross-border tests. So what we're looking for are firms who would like to test an innovation across more than one jurisdiction where they need the support from the financial services regulators. For us, we see cross-border testing as a potential way to help firms deliver innovative ideas on a larger scale and also to help foster closer collaboration between regulators. But what that looks like is entirely up to you and we're, we're really going into this with open minds. So we've got 17 regulators from around the world who are ready to support firms that wish to test something in multiple markets. The application window for firms to apply is open until the 28th of February. And since it's a pilot, we are going to be learning through the process along with those firms who are in the first cohort. Thank you very much, Anna. Super interesting. Let's see how this one develops. Uh, my drink is pretty much empty, so let's take a break. I wonder if a robot will be driving us to work in the future. They say robots could become more intelligent than humans, which can only be a good thing, right? Stephen Hawking said the rise of robots could be disastrous for mankind. Well, I'm looking forward to robots doing the hard parts of my job. If they're smarter than you, they might kick you out of your job. Artificial intelligence. Innovation or invasion. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash subscribe today. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. Uh, Today we have a bit of an announcement of something that's coming live, right? We do. So today is the launch of the second annual Pulse Awards, um, a roundup of the most important banking and fintech brands put together by our research team, which is actually my day job. I do I do have a job other than this. What? I know, right? Um, so the research team spends all its time totally immersed in the world of fintech and banking. We rate and we rank the world's leading digital finance services to make your lives easier. Um, I do that all day, every day. So the Pulse Awards is our roundup of the year, showcasing the most important brands and trends we're seeing. Um, we're going to be announcing the winners one a day from Wednesday um, on the 11FS blog. So make sure you check in to find out who's won. Ooh, very exciting. Looking forward to seeing who's got those. Mm. Should I do it? I'll do it. On with the show. All right. So next up, we keep asking you guys to submit some questions out. And actually, we've had some really, really interesting ones come in. So this week uh, comes a question from Oliver Mitchell, who is the CEO of MoneyCardo. So Oliver asks us, uh, there are a bunch of different approaches to building marketplaces of banking products right now. So we're seeing people like Bird or Starling or Monzo. Which of these approaches do you think has the most merit? And how do you see the customer adoption happening? Sarah, Simon, what do you guys think on this? I, th- I think this is an interesting one because uh, let many flowers bloom, it's hard to say that any of them are really taking the world by storm. Um, like 
There's a couple of nice integrations that I think Monzo just announced an integration with Flux. I, I generally am a fan of baking things deeper into your product contextually rather than just having a marketplace where you can use that other product inside it and see their service. Uh, I think that end-to-end journey thinking of like, uh, again, I'm going to... Um, beat the uber example to death but i don't think about going to the payments gateway and to the location gateway and to all it's just baked into that experience i prefer that personally um but i don't think we've seen enough to know which works um but then yolt's particularly popular right 500 600 customers people like to see all their data in one place i don't know that there's not space for all of those um the really interesting question is uh, who are you and what do you want to achieve right um, i think you could use it in many different ways i'm waiting for marcus to execute on their platform marketplace strategy someone loves marcus just thought mm. i'd put that out there Sarah and marcus sitting <laughs> in the tree um, I, I think this this space is super interesting there like i agree with you simon there's so many different options and so many different players in this space but really right now all we're seeing is like better cross-selling right it's yeah. not mm. really to your point simon really properly integrating this stuff into it and really you know this is what universal banking's been doing forever mm-hmm. we're seeing you know cross-sell upsell potentials and all of these things and you know it's moved beyond it just being a crappy banner and in internet banking to actually something that's a little bit better if you're looking at something like starling mm-hmm. but for many of the others we're not really seeing the you know similar to open banking we're really not seeing the the potential being reached so i really liked the flux example because um, if you don't know flux they uh, basically are a receipting company they work with some merchants and they help with your digital receipts so if i have a monzo card or a starling card and i have flux integrated to that then i can sort of uh, instantly have all of that line item data about everything i bought the price i paid and in theory then i could pay for my expenses really really easily so long as i went to one of those merchants so that sort of deeper integration is really nice and when it's built directly into the user experience rather than just it's a place i go inside it like i think this marketplace idea you remember in the early days of the internet we had portals um and you had just that long list of links and you wanted your name to be alphabetically near the top so that you would get clicked more often like to me 11fs 11 always at the top of those (laughs) lists but like it feels like open banking's in its portal phase right like here's all of the things that you could use of your other services rather than this richly designed interface that's Mm. really really simple i agree with that i think it's not about opening all these things up because like general public are still as dumb as ever and still not going to know whether when or how they need those things so experiences and services need to get closer to exposing those problems and actually then the things might be the things that actually solve those problems what what do you guys think uh marketplaces they're going to catch on or not Well, just just picking up on that point is that really a marketplace then if it's a deep integration because for me a marketplace is where you can choose between different services and you can shop around within something. Marketplace suggests Amazon, but I haven't well, I haven't seen a proper marketplace yet. Things you've seen aggregators of services. So I think what Starling and Yolt are doing is aggregating other accounts. Uh, whereas we haven't actually seen a here's all of the services. You know, like if Go Compare or the price comparison websites, Confuse.com and whomever else, if they were to do that, they could actually probably build more of a marketplace on on the back end. But we haven't seen that no, so much. And, and marketplace really is just choice like it's not the organization defaulting to the thing either their product you know this isn't just rbs selling rbs loans actually being in a situation where actually they can open up to the customer actually having a choice in that scenario so uh, sorry, I was say, just to pick up on the, the comparison sites um money supermarket now has its own app that gives you an own its own credit score so it's found a way to like might make you know create a credit mm. score for you that isn't based off everybody else and then they're recommending products on the back of that so i think we probably will see them moving that way um 
But I, again, like it depends on your definition of marketplace. Do I want, the thing is as well, do I want 75 million different credit cards or I just want somebody to say, these are the five you should go for, pick one of these. I don't know. It's, it's individual choice. I think I think it's quite subjective as well. Well, probably not when you're in China, you'll get shamed. Yes, but, true. Uh, Bao, what do you think? <laughs> well, I, I mean, like, the thing is the marketplaces within, whether it's Monzo or Starling, I mean, they're, they're not necessarily the market leading. I mean, if you go to a price comparison website, you can find potentially, you know, a better fixed term fixed bond account or an easy access account then you could if you go to monzo with the one was it one percent mm. invest tech for example versus the 1.5 on marcus for example so uh, it's not necessarily the best option and i think if you're savvy enough to know about monzo you're probably savvy enough to know about comparison websites and then you're probably and shopping exactly. <laughs> marketplaces well, work best for commodity products and i think we're moving away from commodity products towards uh, services um so if you think about what we're moving towards in like if i can when i used to look at my statement it was a commodity right a banking app had a certain number of features you got a card you got a statement you got you got all of these these features but actually if you consider what a, a consumer wants from it when you go do the the jobs to be done on it they want to know how am i doing versus last month can i afford to make it to the end of the month the statement is a really bad way of doing that so having a lot of services that sell me the same old thing cheaper is not necessarily an improvement that's not a great service and so there's two ways you can differentiate you can differentiate on price but i think the price comparison web websites have done that okay um you can differentiate on wow you can have all of your data together but to me there's so much more to do on the service lens than there is on the commoditization there is but if you think so something else that we you know we were talking about off off um off the recording about the santander raisin deal so santander offering their clients the ability to log in and 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 go on to raisin and look at all different um interest rates on savings for example like that's really interesting from a traditional bank And, and so you know, last weekend I sat down with my parents and my mum was talking about savings accounts and I said, oh, have you signed up for Marcus? And she would only know about that because I'm sitting there talking about it. Now that as a marketplace from a traditional bank to be able to say, hang on, here's a whole bunch of alternatives and we're taking a risk on on cannibalizing our own business. Is, that's very rare still, even in banks that claim um, to be innovative, that's not easy. So I just want to point out, I did that at Viva in 2008 with car insurance. Like, and actually it's a really interesting thing to kind of play through because actually when you start showing competitors pricing what happens and what's the mindset of people because most people will look at it and go holy shit you guys are being trustworthy and we like yeah. now believe you so i'm going to take your product because like you've you've gone out of your way to do it and you'll lose those people who you probably would have lost anyway to doing it so it's a really smart step and i i i think we're going to start seeing a lot more people doing it the hard part like you say is like it, there's like an emotional intelligence to it right going actually this isn't just about our stuff and like um, the individual pricing of these things, kind of weaving that web to make them a, a profit overall. And I, I do wonder if this marketplace approach will actually start to bring about um, probably higher costs on individual products because a bank has to make every product make money. Uh, whereas they can, before, they can do loss leaders to get people into the the sort of community to actually then have the ability to cross-sell and upsell to the points where they actually make make, make benefit. So it's, it's going to be really, really interesting to see how how different players kind of take to this um, but definitely it's one that we'll keep an eye on we will all right well don't forget you guys can submit your own questions to podcasts at 11fs.com or via twitter uh, and we might read yours out next let's get back to the news 
Okay, next up, we have a story over on Finextra. This is Stripe hits new highs. So Stripe has raised 100 million, goddamn, at a $22.5 billion valuation. Holy shit, that's a lot of money. So Stripe have secured another 100 million in funding, this time from Tiger Global Management, boosting their payments firm's valuation to 22.5 billion. The funding follows a 245 million pound Series E. Like, when do they just stop naming these series like <laughs> series z it's just gonna get crazy um which is valuing stripe at just a crazy amount of money so what do you guys think on this so so the uh, stripe is is a big boy payment processor player everything else right now it's like stripe is in the game so i we were talking earlier about like other valuations of other other companies whether you look at financial services companies but first data was the one that came to mind because we were talking about it recently and their market cap has gone up and down today but it's around 23 billion um don't judge me if it's changed like by monday um so they, they they've kind of put their stakes you know their stakes to the ground and i i think what's interesting to me is the ways that they're moving so they are going to do international expansion apparently with the new funding but also going to move more heavily into that enterprise realm so they're already working with uber you know they're going to move heavily into i mean that's where the money is right? we keep saying payments is a volume game so working in the enterprise space makes sense um and yeah i should say the third thing for me is that there's an awful lot of new payments regulation coming in that they're having they're, they're working very closely with and very cleverly on so that uh, you know strong customer authentication that's going to come in in september that's going to be a hell of a problem for anybody who's developed a beautifully smooth frictionless payment journey <laughs> stripe um I, I know this we spoke to them and it's, it's not it's not a secret they're working on an api that helps people um, make that as smooth as possible for people so there's lots of different things they can do with this but to me it all seems part of a very well thought out strategy to me this strike speaks to uh, great developer tooling is a great business model mm. and if you look at what the uh, european banks have done with mediocre at best developer tooling it says that that you've not really invested in tech tech has been seen as a cost center for too long in banking and actually if you see tech as an enabler of growth like 22 billion to set that against some context that's bigger than Deutsche Bank in Germany by market cap. That's bigger than Swedbank. Uh, that's bigger than Citizens uh, Bank in the US. It's bigger than Fifth Third Bank. These are meaty organizations. But they're that- not banks, though. I mean, this is my point about it. Kind of like, you can set it against a bank, but like, they're very different. They're much lighter organization, right? So they have, a, to me, the valuation. Their cost models Sorry, are really the same. No, but then, okay, but then set it against who they're always compared against, which is Agin. Okay, so they listed yep. at, what, 8 billion, and then by the following day, they were on 19 billion. Now it's sort of held at 20 billion. So if you're going to say, well, then let's do a comparison someone you know okay well it's just a paper valuation it's not really a real valuation well look at their biggest competitor and actually they well yeah but the, but Agin was completely mispriced right by about 50 percent as we saw in the first 24 hours so actually then they might have just hit the mark completely right here and they have similar customers they've got uber they've got amazon they've got google i mean they stole uber from Agin, so they are on par yeah, there but, backwards and forwards like <laughs> <laughs> but, but who are they winning the payments business from they're winning the payments business from the banks who were doing a bad job of offering acquiring and i think this is where where the the real the real risk is if you're a bank that offers payment services how do you actually compete with these guys and uh, I, I just don't know the answer to that how, how are you going to get the scale how are you going to build the experience and how are you going to bring the developers in well it's interesting it's not quite the same in the types of banks that you're looking at but i know certainly goldman sachs are looking at adopting more of this sort of 
business model in terms of making banking or invents investment banking self-service as opposed to you know they used to be we're the smartest guys in the room you can never possibly understand what we're thinking you yeah. come we'll turn our black box on and you know you just are, in an are welcome room with a martini and yeah. we'll sort it for you yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the good old days exactly <laughs> whereas now they've got products like marquee which are basically portals that allow you to access their internal tools mm -hmm. and the benefit for them is it allows them to reach people who it wouldn't have been cost effective for them to be customers for them in the past. For example, you know, a wealth manager in Florida who maybe has one product to price every 10 years, but that one one product, that brings in a small amount of revenue. And it reminds me a little bit of uh, Obama's fundraising technique in 2008. You know, it's sort of lots of drips add up to a flood. And if you can flip the model where it's like, okay, let's spend all our time on the whales and make it actually, you know, mm -hmm. let's just collect the drips. Segmenting the market. Yeah. Drips, floods, whales. I'm loving that article. Thanks. <laughs> I miss you, mate. Uh, I, read, I read an article um, kind of when preparing for this and, and it talks about what they were going to use the money for. And I don't know if I've missed a massive thing here, but it talks about how they're moving into issuing global fraud prevention and physical stores with Stripe Terminal. Mm, so I don't know much what, more pause stuff. Point, actual like physical things that you like can hold in your hand has. and accept oh, a payment. Oh, that's yeah. a lot less interesting than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> than actually using Stripe shops. I mean, I would probably buy Stripe merchandise. Like, it's kind of cool. You yeah, I didn't know where I was going okay. with that. I thought maybe there was something particularly innovative. No, that's no, not as interesting. It's actually, it's actually interesting because it's almost like backwards engineering. They've gone from all this beautiful developer yeah. stuff and, you know, beautiful new payment systems to actually going like into a physical... Amazon finally having physical stores. Exactly, exactly. I just yeah. want to follow Oscar's point about going after the small merchants. Small businesses can become large businesses, especially in the startup sector. A uh, tart-up sector? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. A whole different sector. <laughs> <laughs> Very different podcast. Somebody yeah. buy that domain, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a VC that I'd want to get behind. Um, but like small, they start out small, but the scale-ups get really, really large. And actually, that's who Stripe won when they were smaller. Uber were once quite a small business and used Stripe because it was easy to use. Those are the businesses that you want to be going after. That's where your growth as a business is going to be going from uh, in the future. Uh, well, I think it's clear payment scale, right? You know, Stripe, Klarna, like all of these companies like payments, if you can get that right and you can scale it globally, there are billions to be had. So uh, I'd like to launch 11FS payments right now. I'm joking. Um, maybe. <laughs> can we do it in Australia? Yeah, we'll come back to it. On, just, just quickly, I want to pick up on where the money is coming from as well. I think that's quite interesting. Tiger Global. I mean, they are a hedge fund. Or they're cl they've been close to new money since 2000. But in general, what's interesting is, you know, hedge funds have had a torrid time of it over the last couple of years. And so it's interesting to see them trying to move in on what's traditionally VC territory because mm. they've seen since 2008, particularly, the biggest returns have come from growth tech. And so if you have to be delivering alpha for your investors, you know, they've got to muscle in on that market. Indeed. All right. Well, let's move on to the next story. So this is Barclays Rise Up in New York. So this is a story over on Finextra. Barclays supersizes the New York Accelerator. We actually managed to talk to Andy Chalice, who is the MD Principal of Investments, and John Stecker, who is the CIO over at Barclays, to give us a little bit more insight into what this is. The reason we're doing this is we've actually had a whole bunch of inbound of companies looking to have new office space and looking to partner up with us. We thought it was the perfect opportunity to execute on it. Yeah, and the, and the second part of the announcement really is is uh, we're making available additional investment uh, capital uh, to follow on and support companies that have come through the Accelerator program. We've seen great success in London, New York, and Tel Aviv over the last few years. 
with really high quality com companies coming through that are partnering with Barclays, uh, this new investment capital, as I say, is targeted at helping them through the next stage of their growth. So we've seen uh, some really great success stories come through the accelerator over the last few years. You know, John mentioned the, the 10 companies per cohort in each of the three regions annually. Great companies like Chainalysis, uh, who came through the New York program in 2015, grew to a team of 20, raised a $16 million Series A. Um, other companies in New York we've seen like Live Oak and Sigma Ratings have gone on to really good things. London, um, our standout one I think most recently has been Simudyne, where we led their Series A last year. Um, other core companies like Shield Pay and Flux coming through as well. And we're also seeing exits as well. Companies like Bean from our London 2017 program, uh, recently acquired by BGL Group and Corrie BI at Tel Aviv 2016 acquired by Seltonel. So some really good success stories over the last year or two. The biggest thing probably is, is that we get closer to a lot of fintech companies that we want to collaborate with. So as we build forward and actually continue to grow the bank, we view it as more of a composite structure where it's a lot of proprietary build, a lot of existing knowledge inside of the firm, complemented and augmented by the technology and kind of the mindset that a number of these fintechs bring to the table. This was a strategic investor, which is, is Barclays' investment thesis. This is, this is an incredibly rich source of, of great partnership opportunities. Every company that comes through the program has been carefully selected um, because of their likelihood of success and the value that they can, they can deliver to Barclays through the partnership. Uh, for us to invest in these companies really is a very straightforward part of that proposition. Um, so really, it's a long-term growth story for us. We invest in the companies, but uh, more importantly, we partner with them commercially to develop product, develop propositions for our customers. So it drives very, very clear um, outcomes, positive outcomes for both us and the investor. Uh, and it's a direct investment. We're, a, we're an equity shareholder in the company directly. Great to hear from uh, my old colleagues there over at Barclays. I'm glad to see them doing well with um, the textiles piece. There was, I think there was always a, a criticism of would banks ever make sense of their accelerator programs or are they just window shopping? Um, I think this is a step in the right direction, definitely. As you see, companies especially like Flux that are now partnering with Monzo, uh, they're having some success stories. So hopefully we see more of this in the future. Well, if, if they're going to be putting 10 mil up uh, per cohort, that's pretty impressive. You've got to think that's going to help with recruitment. So an accelerator is as good as the companies they can recruit. Um, and that's a, that's a heck of a price. But I do have some feedback for the website. Most accelerators, like if you go on Tech Nation's website, for example, you look at the Future 50 program, you can see, okay, they were this company's been acquired. This company's done you know, a Series C and it's now at this valuation, whatever it might be. You go all the way back to 2015, 2014, you can't see what these businesses have done. I mean, if Bean, as you say, has been acquired, Flux is now partnering with Monzo, likely has a higher valuation. It'd be nice to see where these businesses mm. now are. Yeah, like the sort of heritage type thing. Yeah, yeah it would be good to see because I guess that that then talks to how good they are at exactly. sort of getting people into it or not. Well, Andy, John, if you're listening, great suggestion from our marketing expert here, Val Christensen. Well, that was North. That was for free. <laughs> she's she's going to charge you for the second. Yeah. All right, moving on. So next story. This is one on fintechnews.sg. So this is... Uh, Chief Innovation Officer Neil Cross bids farewell to DBS Bank. And I love the fact that he's essentially swapping DBS for orangutans. If you have not read this, it is an amazing thing to do. So um, Neil, a friend of the show, uh, it's been on a couple of times actually now, hasn't he? Um, is basically hanging up at his boots in banking and going off to start uh, or continue to, to, to fund the orangutan sanctuary that he's created, which is just an amazing thing to do. Did you guys read the farewell letter that he wrote i, yeah. I mean I, I i've spoken to neil cross a couple of times in my, in my previous role i interviewed him and um always and 
I found so fascinating about him was first his willingness to talk to anybody for a start. Um, and second was his idea about leadership and innovation. And his idea about innovation is that he doesn't want to innovate. He wants to create people who know how to innovate and have the freedom to innovate. And then he wants to bugger off. And he has buggered off yeah. to yeah. raise orangutans. Um, and he's a dive school and he's being the non-executive director of like a few companies, one of which is in Australia, yeah. because I have to mention it. <laughs> right. I have a, I'm on a campaign here. I, I have um, to say, um, like Neil is one of the most depressing people to be friends with on Facebook because like watching him build a dive school and an orangutan yeah. sanctuary and his office is essentially in like a, wood hut on the beach like do you think do you think he does going to stay in one of his two hotels yeah he definitely will could we do that and record a well, podcast now he has from there because you've announced so. it yeah, yeah we should done. Done. Free advertising. i think what yeah. he was you know this when he's talking about his projects the thing i loved most um is i'll be launching my book which is about building hotel orangutan and the philosophies i learned from the jungle and how this was applied to my corporate innovation journey <laughs> i love it from anyone who has ever worked in a bank <laughs> the that analogy of what i learned from the jungle and how i apply that to banking i just i, I can't wait to read that book I, I should say as well that neil is one of the two origin stories of fintech insider yes. so we have two of them one of them was both of them involving alcohol, actually. Yeah. So one of them was Solaris Bank in a bar near Bank. Which was fun. And the other one was, I was very drunk in the back of a taxi in Nairobi with Neil Cross. And we were having a really, really fun conversation. So thank you very much for being the inspiration of this show, Neil. It was uh, fun to uh, fun to have you in banking while we had you. All right. Moving on then. So this is a Fun one. We're going to have some fun with this. HSBC's <laughs> new groove. So this is a story over on Marketing Week. So this is HSBC launches sound identity is in speech uh, in next phase of global brand refresh. So in itself, that sounds sort of sensible given a lot of the moves. But HSBC have teamed up with musician Jean-Michel Jarre which I'll be honest, after two points, it's hard to say. <laughs> um, but if anybody doesn't know Jean-Michel Jarre, and I know we have quite a large sort of younger audience, go ask your mum and dad, because they're going to know who that guy was from the 80s. Um, and this is basically he's been hired to try and create a sound identity for the next phase of the global brand refresh for HSBC. So what do we think to this one? What do you guys think? Like, do big brands need a sound identity in this space i think it sounds like save the best for last that song it does in, in a weird weird way like go and look that up guys on spotify you're gonna find it it definitely does yeah sound like you're that. allowed to pauses on your phone and go look up that on spotify but only for that but no only other for that. reason can you yeah. ever pause 11 of us um go ahead well it's just it's very stressful it's like a very intense song i mean think about the times when you'll actually be calling a bank and needing to wait you know, for, to speak to someone at the call center. It's probably when you're like at the airport, you're rushing around, you realize your card hasn't, you know, stopped working or a bank, you know, you've just made a payment and your card's been, you know, for some reason hasn't worked. You know, you're not going to really want to hear like some, you know, thumping, you know, Ibiza kind of music. You're just going to want to be able to get, you know, get to speak to a friendly northerner like I do on First Direct. <laughs> they said the first time anyone will hear it as a customer will be when you're put on hold. And I was like, so basically your goal here is that no one ever hears it and also it's like this uh kind of aversion therapy to the sound that they want you to like and associate with yeah. them like you're on hold here's a sound that makes you think about being on hold like what a, it, it's really odd but sounds can work like if you think about the intel sound mcdonald's yeah yeah we had this conversation earlier david, the- david and i had this conversation so 
I that doesn't work for me. Like the Intel sound was the only one I could think of. I couldn't McDonald's. I could barely remember. Like I, I'm not. I don't associate ba, 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 sound. Ba, ba, ba. Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I, I do remember Ryanair when you land early. Like do 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 another Ryanair yeah, flight. But, but I, I, wouldn't, I, I never hear it and associate it with a brand. It's just like a different. I think different people have different ways so of, of associating things. And and sound is just not one that works for me. Um, and then David pointed out that it's. I'm going to let you make your point, but like it is going to be much more important in the future. And I was like, oh God, I'm screwed because I'm going to hear all these like supposed adverts and supposed cues. And I'm going to be like, what's that? What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? What's supposed to happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah like the dogs don't know when the bell rings to like salvate, do they? Like that's the point of, of sort of the, the, the music side of things is actually if they can create that association without you really understanding it. And most of what you hear is not active listening. It's passive listening. Mm-hmm. And that that is quite, an, like radio have been doing this for ages you mm-hmm. know so it's a really interesting thing to do but this this stuff's definitely going to get more and more important and actually we managed to speak to uh patrick givens over at vayner media who is the uh, head of vayner smart uh focusing on voice marketing to give us his expert opinion the case for why this matters is very similar to why it would matter on a visual side you want some sense of continuity and a uh an intentional plan of the visuals and the sounds that you're putting into the world that equate to something greater, kind of uh, the whole being greater than the sum of all the individual parts. And that can be about aligning with a positioning that you want to hold in the market and kind of creating that broader impact with people. It's important to keep in mind that certainly that can live as an audio logo, as kind of a, a sting, a jingle, something like that that you might hear. It also is going to live in music and the scoring. And that's a lot of it. I think the way that this piece was led from HSBC seems to have come first and foremost with kind of a musical palette and then taking uh, some other sound cues out of that. But it's also going to be the sounds that your products make. What is your, in this case, what does your ATM sound like? What is the interaction in the branch sound like? All of those are sounds the brand is creating. And if paid attention to, can kind of contribute to a greater identity. What are even the voices that are cast across, yes, media, but also product as we have interactive voice uh, assistants taking on more of a role. So really for us, this is actually the, the need for a sonic identity and the case for it isn't particularly new. It's actually been something that is, there was good rationale to invest in for a long time. But as we see on the communications and particularly the media side, the rising prominence of some of these audio first or audio only channels, it's really just kind of calling to attention the need to invest in defining these identities. They were trying to come up with kind of a sonic translation or audio that brought through this brand promise of together we thrive for HSBC. But I would say there's actually potentially a more strategic approach to arriving at the sound where it doesn't need to be so left to, as the quote says, the gut instinct of the marketing executives uh, determining what's the right sound. You're leaving quite a lot uh, at the discretion of one or two individuals. And I'd argue that it's, it's left a bit arbitrary. I think there's some good work that can be done with a little bit of a more rigorous process to actually get a good understanding of what sounds are already out there from your brand, what sounds are out there from the competitive set, define what that positioning that you're trying to hold is and then actually take a little bit of a more uh, measured and strategic approach to choosing what the sounds and the music that you want to produce moving forward are. 
Awesome. Uh, thank you very much for that, Patrick. I-, I think there was a really interesting quote from Andrew Newman, who's the global head of brand over at HSBC, which says, sound is an increasingly important part of brand building. Having a distinct sound which works alongside our visual branding and logo means we can easily be recognized wherever and however our customers interact with us. And I, I think as voice and things like Alexa and Google Home becomes much, much, much more important, then like noises are going to be uh, much more important in terms of the the narrative for how brands kind of create themselves. You know, websites are going to start to be less and less used and voices and voice commands are going to be more and more used. So like having that noise and owning that noise, I can kind of see as a, as a thing that would be there. But I think that's the thing. If it's a noise, like is like, what, six six notes? I mean, it's easy to remember. It's a jingle. It's not a song. I mean, a song is... If I heard that, as you say, it's white noise. If I hear a snippet of that, I'm like, oh, that's the HSBC song. <laughs> you know, you'd have to listen to the whole thing. You'd yeah. have to see it with the ads. You'd have to be in a branch, as you say. So then actually the whole point becomes completely irrelevant yeah. because you'd have to be seeing their branding or be in the store. What I want to be is if I hear, I'm like, oh, is there a McDonald's nearby? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You suddenly it's start getting yeah. hungry, <laughs> but, but that, that's how this works, though. And, it, and it's uh, it's actually, bizarrely, it's traits learned from, um, from TV commercials because essentially what people do in the first place is they will create a long-form advert. And then actually what they'll do is they'll put the sound at the end of that advert. And what they'll do is increasingly reduce the length of the advert so they have to pay less for that advert in place, but keep the sound at the end of it. Um, as somebody who ended up spending reasonable amount of money on adverts at one of the companies that I've worked at in the past, like it works. Because actually if you play the noise at the end of it, you still get the same amount of benefit off the back of it. I don't know about you, but I still prefer the meowing cards. well yeah like those guys did do it in a different way and i guess like as like i know if like i get that push notification and i hear that money sound then like something's happened in my monzo account right yeah there are other ways to do this what do you think oscar you're looking reasonably skeptical well i'm just thinking what's the next frontier is it smells is it you know sort of branded experience if you walk walk on a certain sort of pebble you're like i must be in an hsbc (laughs) i mean as they said as they were were saying there you know this isn't particularly a new frontier I find it a bit funny that HSBC are making such a big deal of it. It's They've sort of made a rod from their own back, I think, in that you should only shout about this sort of thing after it's a success. Yeah, you know, if it's the amount good. of rebrands and, you know, things that just fall by the wayside. You know, they're planting a stake in the ground and saying, we did a thing. this is going to become iconic. This is going to be the sound that in five years everybody will be like, I must check my bank account, you know. Yeah, I, I think that's that's the major point from this, isn't it? It's like you wait until it's successful until you shout about it. Yeah. The fact that you've got some guy who a bunch of millennials will never know about, but you've definitely spent a shit ton of money to come and do this <laughs> thing, Twik- tweaking knobs all sorts in the in the video, uh, probably isn't the thing you should be advertising. Uh, see, if I'm a big marketing agency, all I look at this and see is like HSBC are suckers and throw money after things that don't make a lot of sense. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> which you know, can't be the case, surely. Indeed. All right, on that note, this wraps up this week's new show. Thank you very much to all of our guests. So Val, where can people learn more about you? Uh, so uh, you can reach out to me directly on Twitter, Val Christensen, or on LinkedIn. And if you want to find out more about Oak North, it's oaknorth.com. Wonderful. Oscar? I am Oscar W. Groot on Twitter. And also Yahoo Finance UK is where you'll find all my stories. Wonderful. Liv? Um, so as I mentioned earlier, it's been a busy week for us. We announced our 30 million Series B led by Index. Um, and as part of this new era, we have rebranded uh, to 
kind of keep in line with our aspirations for this new era of uh, the company. So you can now find us at mimiro.com and you can read the press for more about what's been going on this week. Otherwise, if for some reason you'd like to hear more from me, you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn, Livia Benisti. Wonderful. Kachansky. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Wonderful. Simon. Uh, at SY Taylor on Twitter or Simon at 11FS.com if you want to bug me about sounds um, that, from different adverts from different. Uh, <laughs> you <laughs> different are going to regret yeah. <laughs> Do it, people. Bug me about sounds. Indeed. Bug Simon about sounds. Uh, as for me, you can find me lurking on Twitter. I am at David Breer on Twitter. And as of the show, that's it. If you want to reach out and tell us what you thought about this episode, you can find us on Twitter at Fintech Insiders. And don't forget to leave us a review. Simon, we like those reviews, right? We love those reviews. They help us out so much. And you can leave reviews about what everybody said. You can you can even leave reviews about, you know, like what stories we should be doing, what stories we didn't cover, how, how daft I am for having mentioned sounds uh, well, and, I, and my I, email I wanna, address. Like, like, gen- go gen- genuinely, I want people to get in touch and tell us what the sound FinTech Insider should be. Like, yeah. you know, I, I think or, you know, we really sort of need to figure that out that that next thing that we're moving into right so i was looking back the other day when we were having the slack conversation about how we picked the theme tune for fintech insiders and i actually played uh for my fiance some of the other candidates and she was just like no no that's not fintech insider and i was like but it could have been yeah do you know what um well let's tell that story another day. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for listening guys goodbye <laughs> <laughs>